It's the Like the Jam live video podcast, and I'm here with the amazing Dennis Kalachi. And this episode is called Writing Your Life. Just write your life, okay? I'm going to read his bio, and then we're going to bring him in. Give us a wave, Dennis. Hi. He's in his uh, record room. Look at that. That's epic. Okay. Dennis Kalachi was born in Corona, California. He's bounced around Southern California his entire life. He has issued hundreds of recordings over the last three decades on his record label, Shrimper, noted for bringing forth the earliest recordings from Amps for Christ, Woods, Frank Lo Bruno, Lou Barlow's, I can't say that word, Centredro, The Mountain Goats, great band, and a myriad of others. He is in the band Refrigerator, such a cool band, who have released 13 records over those 30 years, as well as a plethora of studio recordings, solo recordings of his own. Kalachi's first book, 100 Cassettes, hold that up, Dennis, if you don't mind, was issued by Pelicanesis. And for any music lover, you have to read this book. He has stories about the replacements, about Prince, so many great bands that he covers in this book. That was issued by Pelicanesis in 2020, followed by a book of short stories on Bamboo Dark Press in 2021 called Five Ghost Stories, which we're going to talk about. His latest book is called Lost Reflection. And that book was just released a few months ago by Bamboo Dark Press. He can currently be heard on his radio show, along with his cohort, Bill Chen, on KSBC Weekly. Welcome, Dennis. Such an honor to have you. Oh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Dennis is a good friend of mine. He published my first book, him and Mark Gibbons, and we perform together. We know each other well. This is going to be an epic conversation. Thank you for everyone who's watching. And Dennis, if you don't mind, um, now that I've read your bio, do you mind reading a little bit of your latest book? Hold it up. And I'm going to put the camera just on you. Read for as long as you want and let people hear that beautiful storytelling voice you have. Ah, uh, turn it down. Turn it down. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, I'll just read a bit from a short story in the book, Lost Reflection. And, oh, you can't even see it because it's lost. It's lost. Uh, this is from the short story, 32 Red. I was on the wheel and I pushed most of my winnings onto 32 Red. The damn thing spun and stared at slow down to me. 32 Red. The table erupted. Strangers at neighboring tables clapped, hooted, and raised their drinks. I was embarrassed then. I was beat fire blushing. I had seen too many made-for-TV movies, so after sorting out the winnings, I left town that night and rented a room at the Motel 6 in Sparks. I drank some Jim Beam from a liquor store bag over an urn filled with rocks from the motel's ice machine. I was blindsided. What on earth was I going to do now? The good news is hard to digest just as hard to digest as the bad. It is fraught with trap doors. You gotta be careful. I gotta be careful, I remember thinking then. I attempted to make up finance to my kids for the ghost that I had been. I paid off Stacy's mortgage. I sent Stephen a check for that same exact amount. She was ecstatic, he was not. We talked over the phone that night that he received the check. The check would never be cashed and I would never hear his voice again. I tuck a 20 and a five next to my plate for Helen when she is busy tending to Sam. He is a regular here. He keeps quiet, doesn't bother no one. Did you see that Richard J put his house up for sale? He is small talking Helen. Perfect moment. Now is my chance. I pull my license, my Texaco credit card and my ATM card out of my drugstore faux leather wallet. I will need these cards with me for the drive home for the just in case breakdown. The highway is full of monsters. The latest one that I'm on is a Chevrolet. I am fucking around with it. I take them cards of identity and slide them into my upper shirt pocket. Nonchalant to my left and right, eyes with myself in the mirror next to the Ansel Adams and James Dean headline newsprint. My eyes are the only ones on me. Perfect. It is only Helen here. No one else behind the bar until four or so. I retell myself it's only her. I loaded the wallet up with as many hundreds as I could get into the webbing and still be able to close it. One good shove and it lands fatherly. I see it on the fatigue mat behind the bar, lying in wait. I'm grateful to Sam, who for once is a real tear, going off about something. I don't even have to say goodbye to her today. She is sighing at his grievance list. She is a barkeep, 
a cheap detective, but learned on her feet. Be cautious, I told myself over and over. Were she to have looked at me for more than a moment earlier this morning, she would be able to see I was a miss. But I think I pulled it off as I head out the door. Jim, she calls out as I'm pushing the AC onto the street with my falling body. Oh, shit. Oh, no. Keep walking. Act like you don't speak the language, like when you were panhandled to death. Don't go back, but go back, I do. This your wallet? I pause for what feels like a few minutes before walking further into my father's place. I am rosary repeating silently. Remember to be careful over and over again in my mind. Be careful. Don't say anything. It is good to be called back. Not to plan, but this is a good chance to plant seeds. What have I done? My hands or fists inside of my pockets as I backtrack. Wow. It's so ironic that you read that story because that's actually like Stephanie Barbie Hammer said, one of my favorite stories because it's really about this guy who like wins all this money, right? On Red 32. I love me a Vegas story or a gambling story. (laughs) And so there's this, right? There's this um, sense of uh, noir about it in a way. We're talking about like, I wondered what year this was. How much did he win? He pays off all these mortgages. He's kind of trying to atone. Where did that story come from? And in fact, let's talk about Lost Reflection in the sense that all of the stories are interrelated. And there's such a sense of grief, loss, reconciliation in all of them. Tell us how the book came to be. It's all fiction for the most part, is my understanding. Uh, short, not flash, all of them, but short pieces that are interwoven with each other. All the characters kind of connect in one way or another. Do you want to tell people watching like how it came to be? Sure. The, the seed of the book was a, a poem, oh. which is also in the book. And uh, it's basically this idea. It's a very simple idea that uh, we reflect upon ourselves, but that isn't really who we are when we talk to our loved ones. Mm our ticks they see who we really are uh they can see through uh the facade at times and the characters in this book are all going through something um and they're not necessarily seeing things correctly uh in real time or even on the reflecting back upon how they got to where they are yeah i mean we're all performing in a way right we're always performing everyone in life is performing um and you do a lot of writing and performing musicianship. How do you manage to do it all? I mean, what is it about these different genres that you work within? Music, film, uh, writing, fiction, nonfiction, different genres within that. Poetry, this book is, this book, Lost Reflection, your latest. You have three books. Um, but Lost Reflection is bookended by two poems that really felt like songs to me. Were they meant to be that way or were they meant to be poetry? Hmm. Um, and I don't know if you want to read one of them from it. Like the first one. I yeah, love that sure. Poem. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a good part. Sure. Yeah, I love that poem. I mean, I love both of them. It's just, I don't, I don't like the drawings. <laughs> <laughs> this is short. Okay. Missing Reflection. Uh, and this is very much uh, a psalm or a song. Um, oh. Glass is missing in the door. I walk right in. I walk right in. No one stops me. I walk right in. I walk right in. I didn't kick it. I didn't ball bat it. I walk right in. The looking glass cloudy. The reflection went missing. I act like I belong here as I walk right in. I walk in. Wow. Um, and that that is like using the simplest language and we talk about performance and work and uh, I think you're getting at this acting and this facade right now, Mm. 10 minutes leading up to us talking, we were talking, we were chatting and there's performance anxiety, even though I've done this a million times every time. And uh, so it's not fake. This isn't phony. This is real and I'm genuine and I'm not wearing my best shirt and I don't have any makeup on. (laughs) It it is just uh, uh, talking about your work. Are you really talking about the work? I mean, it, all those yeah. layers about uh, being genuine or pretentious or, or what have you. Yeah. You know, what's funny about that is what I found in this podcast, which behooves me, is that if I can be present, 
you know, I've tried to drink, that doesn't work. Tried Xanax, that doesn't work. Tried weed, that doesn't work. I have to be myself and I have to listen and I have to be present and be interacting with you for this to work. It does have to be real. It is performance. This isn't me. I'm not like this all, all the time, like so much. But I do think there's something real and true about when you're reading, like that voice that you have. Like it's real. Like that Red 32 story is beautiful. It's beautiful. It's about so much more than a guy who hits on Red 32, right? Hmm. It's about everything. It's about his past. It's about his future. I kind of wanted to know exactly how much he won and what the odds were and how much he bet. But I like that you don't give us all those details. It it is a lot of when I started writing short stories, they were birthed from Mm -hmm. lyrics that I had written that I couldn't sing a 20 verse song. So uh, making these short stories. And uh, when I tend to write, it is not, I never sit down thinking I'm going to write anything of any importance. And that's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) There's not much, but I don't know if it's going to be a a torrid uh, piece of shit uh, that I'm going to be embarrassed about uh, another book I have to burn. Uh, we won't ban books, but we'll burn Dennis Kalachi books. Uh, or if it's going to be a song or what it will end up being. Yeah. And I love that about your work. Um, there is a musicality to it. There is a brevity at times to it. And I think that is part of your songwriting um, that kind of leaks into the fiction and the nonfiction. Um, I also want to talk to you about... Um, the main thread in these stories. So what is the threat? For me, the book is an enigma. And I have to tell you, I've read it two or three times now. And I love every bit of it. But I'm still trying to figure it out. Like, is was one of your goals to kind of be an enigma, to make the reader work for this, to figure it out, right? The first story is about a guy on a train. He's holding a baby. He's going to see his family. And there's all this, you know, we've all gone to family gatherings where you're like, do I really want to be here? Um, should I go? Should I turn around? And you get this sense that he's kind of going back and forth in his head. And there's a lot of, um, there's another story um, kind of about, a, a, it's a funeral and like, like the dad dying. And so like, what is that threat? Is it grief? When I was nearly finished with the, the book, I had a conversation with my brother and Alan who was in the band with me, Refrigerator, and he's a writer as well. He writes um, sometimes very simple, but I think more eloquently than I. And his thoughts, when we collaborate together, and that's what I like about the work, writing by yourself, that's that's a chore. It's hard, we all, right? We all do it, but it's, it is like, what, what sacrifices uh, are my family making, are my mm-hmm. friends making? What could I be doing to be of more use to the world in general? But um, we were talking about uh, true love and how Mm. in our songs with Refrigerator, if we can write a song that is not sappy, but really gets to the point of what true love is. So with this book, and this doesn't give anything away, but I wanted to work through these different stages and get to a point of just benevolence Mm. and true love, which is what the last story is. And the last story is bookended for a reason. It is the same character almost a different mm-hmm. person, a different ending, uh, a baby, a family, um, what have you. So the scripts and the stories that we tell ourselves and where we're going or what we've done and who we are, and we all know this from where we think we've ended up, but that's not the end. I mean, it's yeah. not the end of all the curveballs that yeah. are Your work is very deep and very profound. I have to say that. Like, you know, it reminds me of Joyce in a way. Um, there's his famous story, Araby from Dubliners, which is the very first Joyce story I ever read when I was in junior college at Mount Sac, and my teacher, Holly Cannon, assigned it. And it's really about seeing yourself through another's eyes, right? And seeing who you are, maybe, and it's not who you think you are. And that's the sense that I got from this book in the end. After reading it two or three times, I was like, hmm, I'm, I'm kind of getting it but it takes a while and i i think that's really complicated because it's a short book but it's still super complicated like you don't make it easy which i love about it i mean all the best writers 
um, they don't make it so easy for us. I write very simply, uh, probably like your brother a little bit. Our styles are similar. This memoir dialogue pieces. But there's something to be said for someone who can write fiction. Create these characters out of thin air, right? I know some of it is you, but some of it is not you. And I always find that magical about fiction. I don't have that ability to write fiction. What do you think gives you that ability to write fiction, to create characters out of thin air? It's a kind of magic. Well, we, we need to back up some of the things that you just said. <laughs> uh, your writing is not simple. And Alan's writing is not simple. And, no, no, uh, not at all. Yeah. And I know that's not what you mean. And my writing is by no means Joyce. Uh <laughs> Hey, come on. And again, begin again and again and again and again and again and try maybe. <laughs> but uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I, I, I recall, you know, I was talking to Alan about the old man in the sea Hemingway book. Mm. That we both recently uh, read again. We had read it in high school and reading it again, yeah. being in your 50s and the language and knowing what we know now about. I'm not the world's largest Hemingway fan, but about. Uh, the concussions and the mental illness and all the trouble that he went through in the last portion of his life and that he had lost so much uh, in his ability to write. And then you read that book and it's just, he's always, we all know that he's not giving a lot to you, but it's just, it was so heartbreaking for me to read it this time. Uh, And Kate Chopin, The Awakening, that was another one I read in high school. Oh yeah. Revisit that again. And just like, oh yeah, it, it, we can call those simple, but th- those are so, such complex stories. Yeah, um, even like the Scarlet Letter I had read in high school, I reread it in law school and wrote my note on that in Joyce. And I saw so much more in the Scarlet Letter and Nathaniel Hawthorne and all this stuff, the symbolism that I didn't get as a kid. You know, I didn't get what, you know, adulterous, like the big A really meant, you know? Mm-hmm and as a feminist and all this stuff. So I I do think that's true. Um, In your book, though, you write a lot, even though it's fiction, you use first person. Was that intentional to use the I? I mean, I love the I. It's the only way I can write. I don't ever write in third person or second person. I don't use omniscient narrators. I find that very difficult. What is it about first person when the person is expressing and you have these unreliable narrators which makes it even more complicated right from a craft perspective you're trying to build a world using the eye but using an unreliable narrator and it's fiction like is that intentional or is that just you go with the flow and however it turns out so many people that you've interviewed and that you've talked to and so many writers we we I've read so many biographies and autobiographies, mm-hmm. you and I, and so many people that are watching this. So much of it is out of our control when yeah. you're creating. And so much of it is on the reflecting back and then editing and mm. waking up the next day and reading and like, Oh my God, this, I can't do anything with this. This is awful. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, totally. It's, it's, it's not magic, but it is right. It's almost like, I think when I had um, Tim Kirk on, and he was talking about the uh, puppet book that he wrote. And he told me it was almost automatic writing. And yeah. my best writing is automatic. We, we so many of our favorite pieces of music, our favorite film. I mean, mm-hmm. it just, we know when the flow opens, yeah. all these people know when it hits you. And th- that is kind of the bummer, isn't it? The, the things that we write that we're proud of, you don't feel as though you wrote them. So right. it's good for the ego to realize, I mean, I think about this all the time about uh, why am I writing? Why am I playing music? I, I mm. love creating. I love collaborating. I don't like being in a room alone. I don't like recording yeah. solo records. I like being with other people and it gives you a lift and you get, there's so much spark and so much that is left to chance. Somebody will sneeze and it will change the trajectory of a song or whatever you're working on. Right. Yeah, no, um, you know, Bowie said he wrote because he had to, right? It wasn't a commercial enterprise for him. When he did Ziggy, it almost took over him and it could be kind of harmful in some ways. You know, the whole process of writing can be a very selfish act. You know, there's days where I'm like, I'd much rather just be happy where I am in my life and not have this pressure to create. But I think there is something beautiful in it. Um, And so... Do you have a trivia question to give away Lost Reflection? Have you sure. thought of one? Well, you know, most people have phones. So uh, what kind of trivia can we ask? 
What was the first Something thing? really obscure. <laughs> <laughs> Why did Adamant cancel his show? Oh, does the world know? I don't, I don't know yet. But it could just be a funny answer, and then you've got the book. You don't yeah. have to be factual. And hey, where I, was I, Adamant playing tonight? That's an e- So you have to say where he was playing tonight, and then you have to guess why he canceled the show. You're making this very complex. Yeah. <laughs> Next person in the comments, just say something. <laughs> I have a book to give away. I'll send it to you. So let's move on to another book of yours. I really want to talk to you about Five Ghost Stories. I love this book. It is a ghost story book that is not really ghost stories. Do you have it there? Um, but the first book in the collection is called Model Home. And it's uh, probably one of the most beautiful stories I've ever written because it's from a child perspective. It's a, a young adult or young man voice. And it's about him building this set with his brother that's a Dracula castle. And the reason, the other reason I love it is I have a Barbie doll dream house story where me and my sisters are building a Barbie doll dream house. I think there's something magical in the way that you, number one, you typify this as a ghost story, which it's really not. It's a a young adult or a childhood story. And then number two, but there's all this nostalgia in it, right? Um, And you could talk about that. But what made you, um, it's fiction, clearly, in the book, but is it memoir too? I talked to Mark Givens, who uh, is a great writer (laughs) and my collaborator. Sorry, uh, no idea, but his shirt needed to be pressed so he could, okay, you (laughs) (laughs) win. We'll give you another copy. I'll send you out a copy. Send me your address and we'll send you out another copy of Lost Reflection. I'm sure you have it. Maybe you could give it to a student. Makes for good kindling. Yeah. Yeah. Holidays are coming. No, can't burn that one. Go ahead, Dennis. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, that's okay. I I lost track of what. Oh, we were talking about, yes, uh, you hit on so many genres right there, Juanita. And I never, ever think about genres. I don't think about Mm -hmm. it while doing my radio show. I don't think about it when I'm putting out records or I don't. And this is part of the reason I'm in this little room, this cocoon, is that I never think of the audience. So I've never (laughs) had to deal with millions of dollars and royalty checks flying. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is the self. Someday you will from my lips to God's ears (laughs) or her ears, whoever. Right. Whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, but we we don't, uh, Mark and I don't think about genres. I don't think about that at all. And when I'm writing or when I'm doing anything of that nature, I never put it, it doesn't even occur to me. Um, so what I often do, it's like when I sequence a record with the band or with an artist that I'm working with, we've recorded a record. That is where the blood and the organs and the, the real surgery comes into being. Like you're forming this and you're sculpting what it will be. Mm. You're trying to get all this material and have, there's so much that gets thrown out. With five ghost stories, it was, uh, there's probably 30 short stories I wrote. And Oh, really? it just turned into, well, these kind of all make sense. And I put them together so that the book runs from the voice of a youth to the voice of an old, we see age over the, yeah. the, the, the book. Happens. Totally. Um, but it's just, that's, that's fun for me to listen to. When I listen to records, uh, a perfectly sequenced record by the go-betweens or a perfectly sequenced record where Glenn Gould has chosen the pieces that will be on that three record set that I have uh, the way it's pieced together is fascinating to me and gives the weight of the work so much more uh, meaning. It's what Ziggy Stardust is one of the, uh, your brother will disagree with me about that. It's the best Bowie album, but um, it's one of the best records of all time because of the sequencing, you know, five years, the first song on the album starts this narrative. And I think you're right. There's something very similar in great albums and great books, the way they're sequenced. It's and it's not easy to figure out where to put stuff, you know. We we labor over every word. We labor over every comma. I might, should I use a semicolon <laughs> here? We labor over all of it. But I I come back to this all the time for writers, and people that write music, to remember when you heard a song on an AM radio. If you mm. remember when you heard a song with one little ear pod in your ear and you were moved to tears, none of it matters if you the fidelity of it. None of it. Ma- I mean. Artists get how many records are we going to see where they, the artist goes back and tinkers with it or a film? I had to go back and tinker with it. And yeah. there's none of them that are really that revelatory. You may have, for you, the artist, that may have made the change, but we get it. Uh, we're, we're, 
the, the viewer is, is smart enough. You know, my best stories, my best story always almost comes out almost fully formed the first time. Hmm. Um, the stuff I overwork, I can see the work in it. And I don't like that. I wrote this story about my grandpa's house and I had read a story in the New Yorker about a woman who gifted, um, she had taken care of an old man who had dementia. And when he died, he left her everything. And then she gifted everything back to his family. Hmm. And that prompted the story of my mom who was gifted everything by her dad who had abandoned her at 16 to a convent. And um, he left everyone out of the will, her seven brothers and sisters and just left everything to her. And she split it up between everyone. And I wrote that story in two hours, fully formed. What is that? Is that muse? Is that gift? And I never edited it. I never changed the tense. I never changed a comma. I just left it because I felt like it was magic. And, you know, the best songs, I'm sure, I don't song write because I don't play any instrument. I wish I could. But do the best songs come out similarly in the sense that they're almost like fully formed? Like they're already in your head and you just got to put them down? And then the second part of that question would be, how does your musicianship and being a record producer, how does that influence your writing? Well, the first one is, um, I, I, I don't practice, and you can hear that in my guitar playing. I don't pick up the guitar <laughs> practice or do scales or- uh, What about piano playing on old organs that you found at a thrift store or at a yard sale? Mm. Do you practice that? Well, I practice <laughs> before the show. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Lucille Ball are practicing before the show. <laughs> Ricky, let us go. We want to play. Um, and we're talking about uh, Dennis did a performance of Beyond Baroque, and he had this old, really cool organ that he played that was like, it was so cool. So that was my wife's organ when she was a kid. Uh, oh, so that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. We had a yard sale, and we were both like, yeah, we could sell it. And as the day progressed, I kept pushing it further away, hiding it so nobody would buy it. And I'm sure if anybody attempted to buy it, I would have slapped them. No, <laughs> it means lots, but this is my heirloom, my family heirloom, my wife and I. I love that organ. I, I recorded one record, a solo record. that wasn't really a solo record, uh, The End of Night. And it took me six months to put together. It's a 30-minute song. And oh, wow. all of it was written onto a live one-track recording it's a 10 minute song that i did and it just like you're saying it just fell out but over the course of six months it turned into a 30 minute song i went to the studio and had different people play on it played uh, joel connell who played in the refrigerator early on and man sebastian played drums and franklin added a piano and my two kids played some things on it and there's some harp on it but it was like uh, crafting that song and trying to piece it together was a lot of uh, a different way of approaching music for me and but generally yeah with the band with when i'm recording with other people we do two or three takes and we're done wow. you start losing it and that's not to say these songs are fantastic and great it's not well yeah, <laughs> yeah. i certainly feel like the spark starts to fall on the ground and yeah. uh, the, it gets lost for me anyway yeah and it's also why i like doing live interviewing um I do prep for it. People don't understand. I prep hours and hours and days and days for it. But I think there's a beauty to whatever the conversation is, is what it is. And if my computer frizzes out and I have to switch to my phone and you lose me for five seconds, that's fine too. Like, I think there's a beauty in the impromptu nature of it, right? Like we're not overthinking it. We're not overworking it. And with the music, especially, right? It has to be something like in the moment, um, so we have some people commenting. Is that Michelle Gonzalez's husband from Spitball? I think that is. Hi, if, if Michelle, if you're there too, hi too. Hey, everybody. <laughs> and um, we have Stephanie Barbie Hammer here. We have Victoria Wada. Lots of people tuning in. So <clears throat> I have to talk to you about my favorite book of yours, which is 100 Cassettes. Talk about, um, if you haven't hold it up, but I want people to get this book. Talk about how it started, because the germination of it is very interesting. And then talk to, and then we'll, I'll ask you more about it. How did 100 Cassettes come to be? That came out, what, a while ago, right? Uh, yeah, February 2020. Okay. Three years, four years. That was, uh, just like the other books, and like most of the records, was not written to be fully formed or to be released. Mm -hmm. none, none of the stuff that I do is ever approached <laughs> that this will be a commercial product. Uh, 
commerce. Uh, but I was at a weird juncture that my father-in-law had taken ill and a few months into starting to write this book, which was based on some drawings I had done of some cassettes. Uh, let me backtrack for a moment. I did a hundred cassette drawings of imagined releases by some of my favorite artists or not so favorite artists, but from the whole spectrum. And I just did it for kicks. And when I got to about a hundred, I stopped. Joni Mitchell replacements, bunch of different bands, all genres. Uh, yeah. Derek Bailey, Lord Invader, okay. what have you. But, but it was uh, just for kicks and fun. So I was cut the J card. It was just like being a little kid and playing with your Barbies. I'm downstairs here. I say downstairs. I'm down one step from the house uh, in my little purgatory, but I'm drawing these things and I'm cutting them into J cards. And I'm stuffing them in a cassette. What's show. a J card? Uh, J card is a cassette. Uh, the, the paper. Oh, okay. Like the size of it. Yeah. Yeah. The liner notes, what have you. And Catherine walked down and just looks at me and it's like, almost like my mom walking in on me and I'm masturbating. She's like, I'm <laughs> doing this doing? thing. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I know, ain't it? <laughs> no, no, she knows me. But uh, so after that was done, I just uh, started writing uh, pieces to match every tape. Uh, after ah. the, uh, There was a showing of the tapes, the cassette covers at the Dog Gallery in Pomona. And that night my sister said to me that, wow, I looked at all those cassettes and that's like your autobiography. That's your life story right there. And it kind of struck me. Wow. So uh, it went from there. Writing was, uh, and I think, again, with what you write and with so many authors write, we're trying to work through so many different things, whether it's something minor or something deep in the well. Uh, but this was, uh, I would write every morning about five in the morning to eight o'clock before I went to work. Wow. My house was a ghost house because we had moved in to take care of my father-in-law at that time. He was sick. So I'd come here, make sure the house hadn't flooded, right, and then go to work. And uh, it was just nice to have that space when you're caretaking and you're working full-time. Uh, and you know, and I think this is part of, if I can talk about Bamboo Dart Press for a while. Yeah, please do. So many of the authors whose books that Mark and I put out, they do these tremendous works outside of writing. So many of them have done whether it's teaching yeah. or, or uh, psychological, uh, I would call it warfare. Therapy. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, Ken but, jo Kendall Johnson, for sure. Yeah. And, and yourself, public. I mean, it is this, that is part of, for me, the, the great imprint of this. I get to work with these uh, wonderful people that are doing wonderful things in this world. They're battling every day. And then we go alone to our little typewriter, our little computer, and we type our little things and we send each other little notes. But you know, this back and forth that we all have and that we have in the real world, taking a walk and seeing our neighbors. I mean, those are what makes it, that's our life. It yeah. isn't. My favorite parts of being part of Bamboo Dart, which was magic for me, you know, I never planned it. Stephanie introduced me to Mark, kind of had this idea about these essays I had about punk rock and public defense. And But my favorite part of everything is always when we read together, when we do communion, right? It's like church. It's like literary church for me. And like um, the people I've met through it, the people you and Mark have brought together, a very eclectic, but a very similarly minded group of people, Stephanie Bartkammer, a lot of people who are watching tonight who have published with y'all like is that the best part is creating the community of it it was i think you just started uh, when i started shrimper and that was a solitary affair mm. 30, 33 years ago wow the initial spark when all these artists living in this area came together and discovered one another and the joy of that i didn't think i'd get that feeling again and I still get it in fits and starts here with the label, but it's not quite the same. Whereas with starting this with Mark, uh, he and I uh, introduced each other to people that we knew or didn't know, or people would yeah. send us a manuscript and we'd read it. And uh, the kinetic energy, but also the, the gut and the instinct with the label, I've never put out a record by somebody that I hated. And I put out re by records ah. by people that were strangers. They lived in Iceland or what have you. But I've always been very fortunate in that regard. And the same is true with Bamboo Dart Press. Just these yeah. people that I've met, so many of them have become close friends. And uh, it is a thrill. 
And it's so easy to work with you. I have to say, when you designed my uh, book cover, I had this very specific idea in mind. And it was like almost talking to like a brother, like you got exactly what I wanted to do. Like you and Alan, like immediate kind of connection with like the Bowie stuff and the X stuff. We like all the same bands. Like, like I'm not a music aficionado like you and at all, but I mean, you, we have this connection where we got the, the connection between literature and music and what you're trying to do with punk and social discourse and all this. And I never felt unheard. And I think that's really important that this bamboo dart thing, it's not really a commercial enterprise. The books are $8, right? Um, it's designed to be able to be accessible. So is that accessibility important to you too? That pretty much anyone can afford your book? Because I remember when Stephanie, um, she taught uh, part of portrait and it was like, okay, it's five bucks on Kindle. Like a kid can afford that, right? It's so important. And it's part of- yeah. With the record label, I was putting out tapes mm. that were $2, $2 each. And I had yeah. this back and forth and I was raising my oh, family. Wow. But it was always the accessibility. Alan and I had a uh, public access uh, TV show when we were in our late teens. And I think about No, you that, didn't. Oh, yeah, we did. Is there a video? Uh, somewhere, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and skits and what have you. It was everything that you would think it would be. What was the theme? There was no theme. It was oh, it was very much like the label or Bamboo Dark Press. Was, people were... Contingent of people we were working with, or yeah, who knows what would you know? Awesome. Bad, bad David Lynch, cheap guitar, you know. <laughs> I, don't know. I love it. But the the access is really important, and that's part of mm. what I don't like about social media is that you're on somebody yeah. else's platform and they're doing adverts. The radio show, I did a show at K Space for twelve years, thirteen years, but I only recently started again with my dear friend Bill Chen and. That's public radio. We are on the air. We are everywhere. Yeah. No, no advertising. It's PSAs yeah. and that's it. And that's really important to me. Really important. Yeah. I'm not part of somebody else uh, making money on the back. I mean, it's not like there's a lot of money made down here. But, you know, the, the book imprint, it's like the authors on Bamboo Dart Press and the artists on Shrimper, they're, they're all working. And I'm yeah. working with them. And the most important aspect of that is that if you put a record or a book out with me, I don't need to see my ugly thumbprints on it. I don't need to have myself in any of it. I'll help. I'll do whatever I can. But I'm working with these people for a reason. There's no uh, release I put out that I'm, oh, I hate this book. Oh, yeah. God, I hate yeah. this record. <laughs> it's not work. You yeah. know, it's a lot of work. It's not just like what, what you're doing. No, I get, no, exactly. I totally get what you're saying. So I had it, I have my, I've had my blog for 10 years. At the very beginning, it was two people would read it, three people. Now it's like a I had advertising for a little bit. And then there was like some friggin' uh, Republican ad on my blog. I'm like, what the fuck? So I took all the ads off and I'm glad there's no ads. I don't need the sense that they're going to pay me. With the podcast, I've made a concerted effort that if I'm going to get funded, it's going to be via grant. It's not going to be something where I have to do a spot for someone. Like, I don't blame people like Mark Marone that have hit big and stuff that are doing ads now and stuff. Like, if that's what you do and you put out good product and that's how you fund it, I get it. But what I'm saying is that I don't want to make these interviews contingent on ads or on big books, right? I want to do the writers I love that are in my community. Like, I don't need anything from it. Like it's not designed to be a commercial enterprise. I mean, maybe one day it will be, but right now I just love where it's going. And I think that there's something beautiful in bamboo dart in the sense you've brought together all these writers that have very, I think the unifying thread between all of them is very specific voices. It is a unique. Yeah. I, the, the books may be, uh, sandpaper up against one another. <laughs> but if you read five of them, yeah. no, it's a chorus. It's a it's a beautiful thing. Whether it's a uh, book of photography or poetry or micro, you know, flash fiction, mm -hmm. uh, memoir. But it, it gets back to what do you like and what do you want to do with your life? And that's yeah. I think for, for anybody that is creative. If we can get to this age and not have been bankrupted by all the pressure and all yeah. the, the financial and the, the the social pressure of trying to be artistic and yeah. we want to be whores, do we want to have to call all our friends? Yeah. I'll be down at this bookstore. Can you please come? I mean, it's hard work yeah. and it's a, a balance. Yeah, yeah. That part of it is hard. It's fucking hard. 
I like to find the little kids there. Like if I'm out of Barnes and Noble, I'm there to meet the mother with their kid that's struggling in high school. My whole purpose, if I have to gift them the book, I will. It's never a commercial endeavor. My goal was never to make a money off my book. My goal is to put it in kids' hands. And I think that's the difference. The goal with Bamboo Dart is not to make money, but it is to sustain the enterprise so you can put books in people's hands. Yeah. Yep. Thank so you. So the words can be read, right? And the, the we we had talked a little bit about where we're from, Inland Empire, Inland Empire Girl. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> Self-professed. And, and, we are we are so protective of this area and getting it right. And we're so yeah. uh, anybody from if you're in Cleveland, there's so many parts of Cleveland. Some of my favorite bands are from Cleveland and there's <laughs> all these different walks and different. And why are all these great artists coming out of Cleveland? Well, because oh, they're in Cleveland. <laughs> right. Uh, so we're in Minneapolis. I mean, pick a city, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it is those those off the beaten when you don't have people traveling to Los Angeles to become actors, yeah. then maybe it's on what you find. But it, it is uh, with the imprint and with the label, there is certainly a focus in trying to have a, a good chunk of the artists being from the area that we live in. Yeah, uh, and they are. I mean, you do have some people from like Europe and stuff like that, like some really quirky voices that I love that you do that. But the, the core of it is people from the IE or IE adjacent, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you one more question about 100 cassettes. Then I'm going to uh, move into the next question about the IE and how that plays a role in your work. Um, so you pick these bands and there's a hundred. So I'm just going to pick out my favorite. My favorite story in the book is, of course, about X. That's why I wore my X shirt, which is actually one of the most uh, musical bio pieces in the book. Because some of the uh, pieces are a little more tangential. Like we got to find, you know, how do you get to the band? You're kind of so like there's a piece about Jesus and the Mary Jane, which no one talks about J-Mac ever. Um, And I've seen them live a couple of times. One of my favorite bands and the replacements. Right. One of the best bands of all time punk that turned kind of pop towards the end how did you decide which bands to pick how did you decide in 100 cassettes to order the stories and what role did the drawing play in creating the story was that the impetus and then you went off the drawing or did you like freeform it and go kind of sideways the the drawings had nothing to do with okay. the stories. thank thank goodness if you see the drawings <laughs> <laughs> I love your drawings. Like I love when you do a flyer, dude. They're so old school. S K O O L. No, they're badass. They're like, yeah. You know. Yeah, it's all uh, pen and scrawl. But the uh, some of the stories, like the replacements, it goes back to what we were discussing. That story has virtually nothing to do with the replacements. Right, right. But it's about um, shooting yourself in the foot. It's about Paul Westerberg, for uh, example. Or right. many, many of our friends or ourselves. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the replacement self-destructed. They were going to be one of the biggest bands of all time. One on SNL and threw, and went and played with Tom Petty and threw it all away. If you've read um, the biography of them, which is one of my favorite books of all time, um, I can't remember the guy who wrote it, but the replacement's biography is one of the best musical bios of all. Oh, his name is escaping me, but... What's his name? I put my dog up in a replacement's shirt one time, and he actually uh, Twittered me. So I was like, oh my God, I can't believe he's sending me a tweet about my dog in a replacement's shirt. And like, I put my own t-shirt on him. So it wasn't even a dog shirt. I was just <laughs> like putting my own t-shirt on my dog saying I love the replacements. And the book ended up being in the picture. So he tweeted me. I can't remember his name. Uh, but that replacement's biography really tells how a band can be almost there, almost like a writer and about to hit and then not. And that's okay. Part of the beauty in their replacements and in their reunion tour was the fact that they never really hit, right? I mean, Please to Meet Me kind of did hit, but it didn't, right? There, the the book and so much wonderful archaeology in that book. If yeah, you're a, yeah. a, like the replacements, there's so much you didn't know going into that about yeah. Bob's family and Tommy and what they were what they went through and the grief and the sorrow that they went through and these oh yeah these uh, stoic. Midwesterner men, boys, yeah, couldn't even really talk to one another about anything. And then these songs that come out that are about all of that, right? Um, Trouble yeah. boys, 
Yes, thank by you. Bob Mar. Mar. Yeah. M e h r. And he's writing, he's writing some great uh, liner notes for some of these reissues, and yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, fantastic writer in his own right. Yeah, so. I have a funny story. So my husband and I would go to Pappy's a lot, and one night we went there, and um, Tommy Stinson played a whole set. There was only twenty of us there, <laughs> and we're in a, and I love Tommy Stinson, um, his solo stuff. So I'm really into Tommy on his own. I love Paul Westerberg. He's one of my idols songwriting wise. But Tommy Stinson is a wonderful songwriter in his own right. And I love his songwriting. And he played like we were in a little circle, like 20 of us. And he just played to us all night. It was the fucking coolest thing I've ever done in my life. I was like, how am I standing here with Tommy Stinson? Like, how is that my reality? But I think it's about when you're a music fan and you put yourself in these situations, whether or not Adamant counsels, whatever. But if you put yourself in venues where magic happens, right? I mean, I'm sure I know how many concerts you've been to and how many people you've met. Is it like that? Like, do you think music is magic? And concerts are magic. Is that your favorite thing to do, to go to a show? Would you rather be writing or go to a show? What happened? Oh, I, I don't want to write. <laughs> uh, I love I love music. I love being the surprise. And yeah. you know, those of us that have seen thousands of shows, it's always that moment. I, I was at a yeah. the, the jazz saxophonist Charles Gale show and just roller coaster, one of the most beautiful shows I've ever been to. And then there was a show uh I'm not a was not a fan of the band Berlin, you know, I knew their songs. Uh -huh. Yeah. But they played a show and hey, they did some new I'm songs. And I, I'm a I'm a jaded caustic uh you know uh noise listening whatever all over the map. Yeah I, it's not a guilty pleasure that I like the eurythmics you know but uh yeah pleasure like but, the new wave stuff yeah yeah i kind of am always like oh should i admit that i love you know yeah we don't give a fuck anymore yeah, we admit yeah. everything so and that's fun with doing the radio show as well where you know i'll play a song by uh kiss if i want to or Hanoi Rock, <laughs> and then i'll kiss. go into arthur doyle whatever's you know uh, but or what's her face leather tuscadero some Susie quattro oh come on yes it's fucking good <laughs> and, uh, and i actually think sean cassidy holds up but that's my guilty pleasure is sean cassidy not well, damaged that, that new wave record's pretty good right mm -hmm. Wasp. is that it you know mm -hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> um i'm actually gonna see berlin um they they actually replaced um what what band canceled there's a band that canceled and they replaced them with berlin so uh Ber berlin is playing uh world this weekend i've seen berlin a couple times at small venues but i really she's held up really well her voice for being a female older is still super strong i was really into that album in the 80s so, so and she guy, dated richard blade so how cool oh is God. that yeah, yeah. i love his biography by the way there's a lot of dirt in that one ooh, uh, ooh, <laughs> that's a real memoir i was like <laughs> wow you're gonna like spill all the tea he if we're about talking about, about uh, he talks about everyone like ODing. You're like, wow. Oh, not Richard Blade, Juanita. Yeah, I love no. Richard Blade. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, I you know my husband and I uh, we elope, so I always say if we ever renew our vows, mm -hmm. I want Richard Blade to DJ. No. Yes, he used to play geckos in the '80s. I love Richard Blade. I love DJ Esser too. DJ Esser, if you're watching, but Richard Blade was my like high school kind of crush DJ dude. I know it's like, well, the, the Terry Nunn thing in the Berlin, what struck me about this performance was she did this new song uh, off of the record that came out, whatever, six years ago. And it was about her mom. Uh, and it was, I was, there was about 80 people there and we just looked around and it's very much like seeing a uh, improvisational uh, free jazz show. Or if, if you're watching a, a Patti Smith or somebody of that nature that's going yeah. and just improvising, but almost poetry in a way yeah yeah it was just shivers it was just when you get that yeah. connection and you never know when it's going to come from and i i might have been taking the piss out of berlin leading up to this but it was like wow i was taken taken by that performance oh no no no! i i recently saw drama rama in montclair at the montclair friggin plaza like, i how love weird seeing is that? bands in montclair and from when I oh my god that. i love that venue <laughs> whenever i'm dion warwick's playing in montclair I'm yeah like, i'm going what? to see dion warwick I'm but when the fall the fall played in Pomona or when the, you know, these bands that were so formed, it's like Marky Smith's playing in Pomona. You know, that was one of the greatest, he had just fired his band. It was that tour. Yeah. And he's throwing his little cheap 
sports coat over his back and prowling the stage in Pomona. You know, the streets that we walked down and played. Oh, the nasty ass glass house. I'll go there again. I've seen Pop Tones there, the guys from Love and Rockets. And uh, and I've seen, uh, we just both saw X there. Um, I hate that venue, but I'll go because it's small and it's cool. I saw Johnny Marr there. And where else can you like see someone for 25 bucks anymore? Like, what the well, hell? Talk about not a commercial enterprise, right? They have really big bands, and you're in the yeah. shithole of a venue, but it's a cool venue. <laughs> I mean, I hate it because it's like there's beer on the floor. It reminds me of the Palladium back in the 80s, but there's something punk rock about it. It used to be when bands would play Pomona, the cra- it, was, it was a divide between going to a show in L.A., especially with the advent of the cell phone, everybody being on it. Yeah. a show in the tertiary markets. And it would be like a cool crowd. And like when I go see shows there now, the X show, it was like all these people talking over the show. It was a weird crowd. Oh. Everyone was so drunk and stupid. Yeah, yeah. And there was wrong. a lot of older punkers, but there was a lot of young kids too. Yeah. Yeah. I forgive the young kids. Always. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get drunk, I, I, up on my back. It's okay. And, you know, I've seen X so many times now, and every time is different. And you do talk about that in the story about X and about Xzine and their performance. And I do think there's something special about X. Like Xzine is not always on point. John Doe always tries to keep her on time and stuff. But I think there's a beauty to the disharmony and the discordancy of it um, that I love. And uh, the hard and the soft kind of thing with X. They've always been one of my favorite bands. And I love harmonies. I love the Go-Go's for that reason. And I don't know. What do you think it is about X that they've stayed along? And their their latest album is beautiful. I mean, they're still putting out good music, kind of like the Pixies, like putting out really good records. The, those, there, there is a band that's magic. You've I've seen X uh, <laughs> without the four member the the oh, and it's always a, it's a different story. And even when when yeah. Billy Zoom took ill about six or seven years ago with cancer, they had somebody fill mm-hmm. in. It was like this isn't X. It's just it not didn't feel X. like X without Billy Zoom. I hundred percent agree. Yeah, and it's just they're them together. It's like I need action figures of X. It's like they're <laughs> so beautiful. And that you're right, the vocal and the writing that is the whole thing too. You talk about great writers, John Doe and Xene, and uh, that, those lyrics are just beautiful. Uh, I love John Doe's solo stuff. His Garden State album is one of my favorite albums of all time. The Americana stuff. I saw him do a performance at. Um, actually Pappy and Harrods where he did kind of a June Carter, Johnny Cash thing with the country singer. And it was really friggin' cool. Like John Doe is really a master. He's been on a, a tear that twin brother song. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, it's beautiful. And there was an EP that so came out with was an acoustic version, some villain covers, but I love sang. what he does acoustic too. Yeah. He's just uh, what a, what a phenomenal voice. Everything is there. Mm-hmm. I don't care. If you the don't song like Because I Do, um, there's an acoustic version that they did for KXEP that him and Xene did. And it's what well, I listen to that version, the acoustic, softer version over the punk version, because you can really hear the words. Mm. So sometimes there's a beauty when you take this punk hardcore, like not hardcore really, but really harsh song where you can barely understand what Xene is saying, right? Because she's kind of screaming it. And then you tone it down to this acoustic version. And it's so beautiful because, I mean, all the writing, him and Xene together, she's a poet, right? I mean, you see it. And she's unnatural. Like, Xene was not a trained singer. She didn't get up there and sing to sing. She got up there to sing to to preach, you know, to kind of give her voice, you know? You're, you're my favorites. Uh I- Alan just said, X action figures. Come on, let's create them. <laughs> yeah, Alan and I will make those out of tinfoil. <laughs> tinfoil and Dracula, like to somehow make him look like John Doe or Billy Zoom. And then you could take like Morticia, like a Morticia action figure and kind of put a polka dot dress on her maybe. And a little red wig and a little X shirt. Like we could do this. DJ like- Bone Break, Dapper, Invisible Man. <laughs> You know, it's it's all there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and speaking of that, one of my favorite stories that Alan wrote is the story of you two and Toys R Us. <laughs> let's 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 let uh, the past be the past. <laughs> no, because like Toys R Us was such a part of my childhood, and my dad would tell us that they canceled Jeffrey. Jeffrey's not going to be there. Just not going to be there. What a liar. And I would be like, dad, come on. I want to go see Jeffrey. Like it was a big deal to see Jeffrey at Toys R Us. And the Toys R Us was on 
think it was on Mountain or Central and Upland, right below yeah, the 10 Central. freeway. Yeah. Now it's a Walmart, which is coming, right? Yeah. You know, we, we just lost so many of our landmarks. We lost the Mission Drive-In and we drive these oh. and think about, yeah, I, I drive the 10 freeway and I think about that was an exit I took to get to that record store. That was a club that used to be uh, this exit, right? Uh, but thank God that we, we lived um, and yeah. we got to see those things. And grass always pokes up through the concrete. There'll be other clubs. There'll be another Jeffrey. Okay. He's coming. He's coming. Um, so Alan just said the exact then he said yes. I think he's talking about the Toys R Us story. So um we're we have about five minutes left. If you could tell the writers and people who are watching where they can find you, where they can get your work, Pelicanesis, Bamboo Dark Press are the websites. But talk about your next reading. Don't you have a reading at a brewery soon? Um well, there is a uh, one on the 28th. I, I will I will be there, but I won't be reading uh, with uh, Adam Lipman and uh, a host of uh, uh, folks reading there. Brown, Richard Brown Letham will be there. Uh, some other writers. People on, from Bamboo Dart. Yeah. Uh, I have two readings in June. One is, oh, uh, oh the Garner House in Claremont with Margot oh, cool. and uh, Romaine Washington and Alan and Richard Riddle. What is that? That is uh, June twenty second, a Thursday at seven okay. o'clock night. And then, yeah, and uh, send me the info, and I'll put it on my uh, Life of Gem Facebook page if people want to find it. I definitely want to go to that. If you haven't seen Romaine Reed, haven't seen Dennis Reed, I mean, and Mar Maggie Hover, she came. You just published her book. She's one of the most amazing writers. She's an, you know, a little older lady, and she's just so profound, like so profound steamroller she plays the bagpipes too I mean, there's things she does and yeah you say that's uh she's not demure and she's not small she is a powerful yeah. right uh powerful woman and a great writer great writer yeah and a spiritual person she has this energy in this doing for others that throughout her life she's really put into action and you you meet so few people nowadays that are really about what their actions are not talking about what they do but they've lived this life of service and she really has lived a life of service and continues to serve people yeah. in her community and older people and helping them build community in her where she lives and stuff. And I just think she wrote an article for the Riverside lawyer for a religious issue. And it was just so profound and beautiful. And then she's coming out. She just came out with this book and by bamboo dart. So look her up on bamboodartpress.com and then go yeah. see them on June 22nd. Yeah, it'll be great. Great fun. So um, I just want to say a couple things. Um, our next writer who's going to come on the show is a Pelicanesis writer, Sean Kravica. He wrote this beautiful book called Hold Still Fast. And um, he's going to come on in two weeks on May 31st. The only reason I'm not having a podcast on May 24th is I'll be at the Cure Show. Um, trying to get better seats, but I, I'm there. I'm in L. I'm trying to get down to the garden box, but we'll see if that happens. Regardless, I will be at the Cure Show, but Sean will be here on May 31st in two weeks on a Wednesday at 7 p.m. And then, Dennis, do you want to lead us out with a song or a poem? I don't think you have your guitar, so maybe you won't sing for me. I, I think the guitar over the Zoom is not going to hold up. <laughs> I, I do you want to read the last poem in the book? Yeah, sure. sure. I love that poem. So. Oh. Everyone listening in, this is the last poem and last reflection. That book ends the book. He read the first poem earlier. I caught it in your handheld mirror, the one in the upper left bathroom drawer, as it flew just out of sight from me. Was it a neighbor at the door? The kids in the front yard rushing into the street after a tennis ball? I rushed and I hurried and I was hasty. I shoved it in my left back backside pocket. I threw the fire off of the stove. The mail into a rental check, and holy hell, I thought when I was done, I must no longer be young, for it mm -hmm. tired me out. It tired me out, and I forgot until sitting down about the reflection in my pocket, cracking before being entirely lost to me. Triple snap. Thank you, Dennis, for being on. This has been a beautiful conversation. Oh, I'm so sharing on my Facebook page, and I really appreciate you coming on. You're out there. You know how I feel. You're just such a, a voice. And I think when you read, um, I do, I, you talked about earlier how lost reflection, you're trying to capture kind of the stages of life. And in that end poem, I felt it now. And I don't know if I heard it. Um, I've read that poem a couple of times. But when you read it, it had a different cadence for me. I felt it. I felt that stage. Yeah. 
So kind. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I love you. Love you too. Thank you for coming on. Everyone, May 31st, Sean Pratica. And we'll see you later. Bye.